You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros, and top instructors come to share their stories, insights, and tips. Now, back to you, Chris. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Mr. Ben Wright. And you guys know Ben Wright is a treasure to me and to the game of golf. His kindness and generosity over the years goes beyond words. In my mind, he is the best broadcaster in golf history for the wonderful way that he has painted images for all of us for what's happening out there on the golf course. He is one of the great storytellers of all time, and you'll understand why I say that even more if you go pick up his book, Good Bounces and Bad Lies, which is available on Amazon.com. One of the things I've posted on social media over the last couple of years and on our website, nextonthetee.net, are five things that I am hoping for out of the new golf year. And at the top of my list every year is wishing that Ben Wright would have the opportunity to broadcast one more Masters. I believe the golf world would love to hear his voice and his insights enhancing the Masters tournament. I know I would. He is a part of the fabric of what made watching the Masters tournament so great during the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. He's a legend, and I'm honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mr. Wright. Thank you for coming back on the show. Oh, my, my word. You know, Christmas, Caro, you're, you flatter me out of all recognition. It's rubbish. <laughs> I'm just a very ordinary person and uh, very old, too. But um, I, I have seen an awful lot of golf in my time. And actually, I know you're going to talk about the Ryder Cup. And I actually w- watched the 1953 version at Wentworth, England, uh, when we should have won. But um, two of our youngsters, Bernard Hunt and Peter Alice, who were youngsters at the time, lost their singles. And uh, we lost the match by six and a half to five and a half. Now, it was a lot different in those days. There were things like 36-hole singles, which were incredibly boring when someone is about 12 ahead. But um, what I mean to say to you is that um, my only virtue is, as Henry Longhurst, my guidance, mentor used to say to me, you're so old that no one can question whether you're lying or not. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mr. Ray, you're right. I want to get your thoughts on the Ryder Cup. You know, here we are, you know, a couple of days post and sort of everyone is doing the postmortem on what went wrong for the U.S., what went right for the European team. And as we look at it, it seems like the U.S. is just never good when the when the matches are over there on European soil, at least not over the last couple of decades. So I want to get your thoughts. When you look at both teams, why is the European team so good? And what do we need to learn in order to be more competitive? Well, now, Chris, I'm going to be politically incorrect, and I'm going to bite the hand that fed me so wonderfully well when I was with CBS television for 27 years. I'm afraid it's all gone wrong here in the United States. The golf courses on the PGA Tour are set up with minimal rough, wide fairways, greens like uh, risotto, 
they're so receptive. The ball, I mean, he's playing darts to hit to the greens. And uh, of course, there are millions and millions of dollars, and the world flocks to try and uh, cash in. But it, it has basically destroyed the finesse of the game over here. You know, you now got the Bash brothers, you know, Johns, Johnson and Kepka. Uh, you, you know, it's just gone wrong. Uh, when there's a subtlety about the golf course, as there was in Paris, then the Americans are lost. Because the only way they've learned how to play is to hit it as hard as you can, find it, and you'll know that out of minimal rough, you can uh, drop it on the green and it'll stop quickly. Uh, and, of course, this is not real golf. And what we've come to now is a, it really is a weekly succession of exhibitions in which the rich get richer and, and so on. And, uh, and and it breaks my heart because, you know, I've spent so many years here loving every minute of your wonderful country and your wonderful golf, but the Americans have destroyed themselves. And it, it really, I, I, I hate to say these things, but I firmly believe them, Chris. I wouldn't be talking like this if I didn't believe it. And um, also, I don't think the Americans have quite grasped the concept of the team play, of, of leaving your ego at the door, which was one of their uh, mottos this year, but it singularly failed. And uh, I read in an English newspaper today that Kepka and, and Johnson almost came to blows after the event. Patrick Reed and his wife have sounded off against everybody. Uh, I mean, it just, it's a very sad thing in my mind because I remember the vintage years of American golf. And, of course, I'm not forgetting that Hazeltine was set up exactly as I've described for the Bash brothers, hit it on the green and they'll stop. And they had the fairways there as wide as a mile. It was, uh, of course, this, uh, something to be said against the captain being able to set up the golf course uh, as he wants it. In my opinion, uh, it should be neutrally set up, but at the same time to favor the finesse of golf, the finer points of the game. Uh, I hate to go on like this. You know, it, it, it's sad because uh, Woods and Mickelson, Tiger and Phil, I mean, they were dreadful. 0-6, Jim Furyk's uh, captain's picks, dreadful. 2-10. and 10. And, of course, Molinari, God bless him, uh, the quietest Italian I've ever known, uh, <laughs> was the first Euro to go 5-0. and 0. 
And he and Tommy Fleetwood, with the, he of the long hair, uh, were the first for the Euros to go 4 0. And uh, quite frankly, even Sergio Garcia, who was an absolute genius picked by Thomas Bjorn, uh, as a, as a wild card, has now got the most points in Ryder Cup history, 25 and a half. And Europeans have won the last nine of these 12 encounters. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Something that you mentioned <laughs> a, mo- a moment ago, ego and, and, you know, checking it at the door and that sort of thing. Um, it's just my perception, and you would certainly have a better read on it than I. But it seems like the European teams are happy, win or lose. They have so much team camaraderie. They enjoy, you know, each other. They enjoy the moment and the contest. And if they win, obviously they go crazy. If they lose, they're still happy, and they still seem to have a good time and being a part of the event. And it seems like there's more angst on the U.S. side. Do you sense that, or am I off base? You're absolutely correct, Chris, once again. Now, one of the most interesting things that I gleaned from uh, the past few years, that when uh, the Euros smashed America at Oakland Hills in uh, Michigan uh, many years ago now, um, the bill for uh, drinks and cigars was $400 for the week in the United States uh, locker room, and it was 4000 for the euros, you know, cigars and booze. And it seems like the euros know how to relax so much better than the Americans. I take your point completely. But it seems like the, the Americans are so uptight. They don't, they just don't seem to be able to relax and have any kind of fun. I mean, this thing is, there's no money in it. It's just pride of, uh, of, of your, for your country. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm desperately, desperately disappointed that Americans were so pathetic. And they were pathetic. And Mr. Ray, you talk about different guys and their records. You look at Tiger Woods now, terrible record over the course of his Ryder Cup career in four ball and foursomes. Nine, nineteen, and one. Oh and four in this Ryder Cup. He hasn't won a Ryder Cup match since two thousand and ten. Why do you think Tiger and whoever they pair with him, those that duo, that team, if you will, why do they always seem to struggle? Well, I think in Tiger's case I think he gave his all in Atlanta the week before. And I think he was, he, he came to Paris a spent force. And that's, um, the kind way uh, of looking at it. Uh, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think Tiger, who's the second worst, uh, Ryder Cup record to Phil Mickelson, who has the dead worst. I don't think that they are truly team players. I mean, you have to be very self-centered to make a fortune in golf. 
I think Jack Nicholas is a case in point. He was extremely self-centered in, in winning as many majors as he did. But he had the ability to translate to the team concept and was a tremendous player in the Ryder Cup. Uh, Woods and Mickelson have been absolutely dreadful. And uh, I, uh, this thing, I'll tell you what, Chris, I'm genuinely sad about this. It, 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 it distresses me horribly. It really does. And Mr. Ray, you, you mentioned Jack Nicholas. So I want to go back and you talked about the, the earlier, uh, the, the 53 Ryder Cup. I want to take you back to 69. Um, I've had the uh, privilege of having Tony Jacks, uh, Jacqueline on the show a couple of times. She's going to join me again next week. So going back to the concession, at the 69 Ryder Cup when Jack Nicholas picked up Tony Jacklin's marker there on the 18th hole after Nicholas holes out from about five feet and Jacklin only had two feet left. But I've read stories about how upset Sam Snead was and some of the other players on the team that he would do such a thing. How big a deal was it at that time? A huge deal. And you're quite right. I saw Sam. He was just going ape about, about how stupid Nicholas could be, because uh, Tony Jacklin, who is still one of my greatest friends, um, was a very suspect short putter. And as Nicholas said, you know, I just didn't want to give you the chance to miss it, which was the greatest sporting gesture that, that I've ever known in my golf career. And um, that it was a huge event, but, you know... While we're on the subject of Tony, he should have been, he should have been knighted for his services to, uh, the, the Brits and the Euros in the Ryder Cup. He was the guy who got it all together again in 1983 when we failed very narrowly at Palm Beach Gardens. And then he was the man, the Belfry, when we won in 85. And of course, uh, one in 87 and 89 and so on. And of course, um, Nicholas, uh, God bless him, was the American captain, uh, when your boys lost on, uh, at his own golf course, Muirfield Village, when uh, Tony was our captain. And of course, I was there and the celebrations were still going on at 10 o'clock the next morning. It was so wild that the Euros had won against Jack Nicholas, the captain, in, in, at his own golf course. And, you know, it, it, Tony Jacklin turned the whole darn thing around almost by himself. Uh, he insisted that the Euros uh, travel first class instead of coach for a start. I mean, why would you send your team across the Atlantic in coach? But that's what happened in the in the early bad old days when all the, the, our boys were doing. And it was Britain and Ireland then uh, was to come and have a belly full of steaks, and all the Americans were doing 
was to come to Scotland or or Britain and buy up all the cashmere. I mean, the match was a foregone conclusion for so long. It was, it, it, and Jack Nicholas wrote to the Earl of Derby, who was the boss man of the British PGA at the time, uh, after the crushing defeat of uh, the British and Irish at Royal Lism in 1977, that he said, you've got to bring in Europe. We brought in Europe, and in 1979 and 81, you Americans just absolutely destroyed us, first at the Greenbrier, and then at our own Walton Heath. It was only then that they went to Tony Jacklin, and he saved he saved the whole thing from oblivion. Mr. Wright, one more before we let you go and just kind of switch gears just a little bit. But after watching you know, how well Tiger has played this season, particularly at the end of it, obviously winning the Tour Championship, many people calling Tiger's comeback the greatest of all time. And I keep trying to tell people it isn't even close to what Ben Hogan overcame in his comeback from a, a near head-on collision with a Greyhound bus that you know, cr- crushed his side of the car. He had a fractured pelvis and a collarbone and a left ankle and chipped ribs and near-fatal blood clots that plagued him the rest of his life, particularly in his legs. But 11 months later, he's back out there, lost a playoff in his first tournament back, and then went on to win 11 tournaments and six more majors. So to me, you can't even compare the two. To me, it's not even close. What are your thoughts? Uh, exactly what you're saying. Ben Hogan's was the greatest thing that ever was. And he won the three majors that he competed in, including the British at Carnoustie in 1953, four years after that horrendous accident. Um, to my mind, and I, with due respect to Tiger Woods, who is one unbelievably great player. Don't get me wrong, but his comeback is a pale shadow against that of Ben Hogan, in my humble opinion. Mr. Wright, uh, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. It's always such an honor and a privilege for me to get to spend some time with you. I mean it sincerely. You're a treasure to me. You're a treasure to the game of golf. And uh, I can't thank you enough for continuing to come back and be a part of the show. You're a wonderful man. Well, you know something, Chris? It's only because uh, you invite me and you're so nice about me. <laughs> I mean, I've never been flattered like this in my life, dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate you. God bless Mr. you. Take care, Mr. Wright. I look forward to hopefully the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. I hope so, too, Chris. Take care. That is uh, the legendary Mr. Ben Wright, and uh, like I say, a couple of different things come straight from the heart. Uh, he means a great deal to me. I think he's a treasure to the game of golf. I think he's a treasure to broadcasting in general. Nobody has ever done it any better than he did, and when I look at things that I wish I could see one more time in my lifetime, it would be Ben Wright uh, broadcasting another Masters. All right, I've got my next guest, Matthew Lawrence, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Matthew on the other side of these words about the PGA Tour Superstore. 